we must always be willing to listen to counsel. What? Uh, it's all about my opinion about me. Well, not necessarily. We study Proverbs chapter 12 in five minutes and discover what God says about that. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are. My name is Rod Hembry. I'm Janice. And this is Bible Discovery TV. We are studying the Bible. And today we're in the book of four words. In other words, words for a living or Proverbs. Corey and Ryan are coming up in 20 minutes. Corey? Today I'm looking at even more jars and even more palaces. <laughs> Ryan? Today we read more wise proverbs from Solomon, but unfortunately he didn't follow his own advice as he became defiant against God and God punished him for it. We're gonna talk about it. Very good, excellent. Today, what are we doing? It's Friday, so that means we have a Friday wrap-up question. It's going to come anywhere from Psalm 139 through to Proverbs chapter 14. Be ready. Proverbs 12, 1-4 Whoever loves instruction loves knowledge, but he who hates correction is stupid. A good man obtains favor from the Lord, but a man of wicked intentions he will condemn. A man is not established by wickedness, but the root of the righteous cannot be moved. An excellent wife is the crown of her husband, but she who causes shame is like rottenness in his bones. Proverbs chapter 12, verses 1 through 4. Proverbs 12, Proverbs 13, and Proverbs 14 as we continue reading through the book of Proverbs, going through the Bible. For the 33rd year, this is very exciting, I'll tell you. And uh, it becomes important because what we believe affects how we behave. What we believe affects how we behave. And how we behave affects how people see us, our character, our lifestyle, our reputation. And if we're willing to learn, knowing that we don't know everything, we will do well. However, if we assume that we have all the answers to the problems in the world and we can solve all of them in our own way, we stagnate our growth as a person. And the question is, where does that knowledge and instruction come from? Proverbs 12 explains to us that we are people who need instruction throughout our life. If we are people who have made peace with God, then we are willing to listen and obey the Lord as our life unfolds. In fact, that is what the Bible calls the love of knowledge. As we learn to love and seek the Lord, we become disciplined and we gain the knowledge through it. All right, did you understand that? Because that's a hard one for us to understand and get. And I think it's important that we should. This is not something that is broadcast on television or on the internet at all. But I would suggest that the word of God through the iPad, the Word of God, through your Bible, the Word of God, doesn't matter. The Word of God tells us the truth, and we need to pay attention to that. Take your Bible guide, turn to today's passage as we focus on 
uh, Becoming Wise. And uh, if you don't have an iPad, just call us or write to us or go to BibleDiscoveryTV.com. Click on it. Uh, thanks for the donations. It takes you to the donation page. And then it goes to the place where you can download it, exactly how we printed it. And you can have your copy in the computer. And as we focus on this, we need to pray and ask God to show us his way, especially in Proverbs. We need to pray. And Father, we pray today that you would speak to our hearts. Help us, Lord, to realize what you've said and help us to learn from you because we don't know everything. Thank you, Lord. In the name of Jesus Christ, and we said together, make it so. Amen. As we look at this, Proverbs is a really interesting passage. Now, the first verse of chapter 12 is very important. And I want you to really pay attention to this because we need to think it through. Let's hear what God is saying. It says, whoever loves instruction loves knowledge. Whoever loves instruction loves knowledge. But he who hates correction is stupid. <laughs> <laughs> and that's where the Bible uses that word. We must always be willing to listen to counsel. Correction is a wonderful thing because it brings us to the truth. I would say to you that there's many times in my life where I thought I knew the truth, but I really didn't. And I'm not talking about a simple truth. He did this or she did that. I'm talking about the truth of what's real and what's a lie what's good and what's bad. God will tell us and instruct us and show us because this world is a deceitful place. The enemy's trying to deceive your soul. And it becomes very important for us to pay attention to God because as we go through life as Christians, people who made the decision, invited Jesus into our life and to follow him, everything's gonna try to trip us up because we're on new territory. But as we listen to the Bible, we read the word of God. And as we pray and ask God to show us his way and teach us his path, things begin to change because God shows us. And there are many times, I can't count them all, when I thought I knew the truth. I knew it. Only to learn. I didn't know the truth. And God corrected me. I'll tell you, this experience of living with God is amazing. We need to learn from that. So we need to learn to love correction. God is going to correct us. Let's learn to love him for that. This world doesn't teach that, I'll tell you. All right, let's go on to Proverbs chapter 12, verses 2 and 3. Here's what it says. A good man obtains favor from the Lord, but a man of wicked intentions, he will condemn. A good man obtains favor from the Lord, but a man of wicked intentions, he will condemn. A man is not established by wickedness, but the root of the righteous cannot be moved. Wow. People who obtain favor from the Lord establish themselves well. Wickedness uses up and does not keep us well. It uses us and does not keep us well. Wickedness is not something that's great for us. And it's easy to get into if we don't pay attention to the word, if we don't pay attention to God, if we don't pray or read the Bible, very easy to fall into wickedness. We need to stop and we need to say, wait a minute, Lord, your way is right and your way, I should do this differently. So help me, Father, to do things your way, not the way I feel I want to do them. 
because there's things that we want to do that we think are right, but actually they're wrong. There's things that we've justified in our mind and we say, well, that's right because God made me that way. No, sin made you that way and God's trying to correct you. We need to hear the word of God. The word of God dictates to us what's right and wrong. The word of God tells us what righteousness is, rightness with God. What that is, is defined in the word of God, the 66 books written by the 40 authors, period. No other definition of it. We need to focus on that. All right, now let's read on because this gets even more interesting. There's one verse. There's one verse here. Okay, now think this through. An excellent wife is a crown of her husband. But she who causes shame is like rottenness in his bones. <laughs> this is important. A wife is 50% of a marriage and ministry. No question about it. We should pray for our spouses all the time. Uh, the best way I like to think about marriage is this. There's the husband. There's the wife. And there's God. God is Lord of our wife. God is Lord of us. And we have roles that we respond to, and God has programmed this for those roles. But we need to understand, and I can tell you this because my wife is listening to me right now, and she's running these graphics for me. And my wife knows what I'm saying, and she understands it. We don't always agree on how to do everything, but I got to tell you, 100% of what we've agreed to is what the Lord said. But God teaches us through working with each other, God is showing us and teaching us how to continue to grow. After 41 years of marriage, can you believe that? I love my wife more than I ever have. But anyway, the idea is that we need to understand this is what the Lord wants. So marriages often break up because they don't get it, that, that it's God who brings us together. So when we break up a marriage and just write it off on divorce, we've said essentially that God failed. If we got married in the church and under the authority of God, well, God failed. Well, God doesn't fail. We failed. And so we don't need to fail. We need to come to the Lord and ask the Lord to help us. Now, I know because the spouses are each individual choices, and I know there's complications there. I don't have time to get into that. But I can say we need to think carefully about marriage and ask God to help us in our marriage where we are with what we have. Lord, I pray today in the name of Jesus Christ that we would see that our spouses are very important and they are 50% of who we are. So help us, Lord, in the name of Jesus Christ to understand that we need to pay attention to you and follow your lead on this, not our own selfish needs. In Jesus' name, amen. But a lie is when somebody tells you, I know how you'll be happy. You buy this hairspray and you're going to be happy. You smell like this flower, you're going to be happy. You take this drug, you're going to be happy. You buy this car, you're going to be happy. See, it all tells me I'm going to be happy. No, I'm not. That's not how this works. The truth is that I am not happy until I find the purpose of why I exist. My purpose for living. Welcome back to the program. 
Today our reading assignment is Proverbs 12 to 14, and these are more wise sayings from King Solomon. And it was God who gave Solomon a wise heart. So these Proverbs come from the heart of the Holy Spirit, ultimately. Now, unfortunately, Solomon's life wasn't always consistent with what he preached. As a matter of fact, he totally disregarded God's command not to multiply wives. And just as God warned, all these women turned his heart away from the one true God. So what does God do? Well, he doesn't destroy him, but as 1 Kings 11 explains, he does raise up enemies against him. Despite the fact that God expressly warned King Solomon not to multiply wives, that is precisely what he did. And he did so with great defiance, as the Bible records that he had a staggering 700 wives and 300 concubines. And the result was exactly as God had predicted. His wives turned his heart away after other gods, and his heart was not completely devoted to the Lord his God, as was the heart of his father David. Though God chose not to destroy Solomon or to take the kingdom away from him presently, the Lord did raise up strong adversaries against him. One of these adversaries was Hadad the Edomite. Of royal descent, he was forced to flee to Egypt as a little boy during King David's eradication of all Edomite males. When young Hadad arrived in Egypt, he found tremendous favor with the Pharaoh, who not only gave him food and provisions, but also a house and land. And if that wasn't enough, Pharaoh even made him a part of his family by giving him the queen's sister as a wife. When David eventually died, Hadad returned to Edom as its king, where he would continually oppose Solomon. A second enemy God raised up against Solomon was Rezin. Like Hadad, Rezin's revenge would also be motivated by David's exploits. Apparently, while serving as a commander under the king of Zobah, David attacked and defeated Zobah, but Rezin seems to have either escaped from the battle or else fled from the king later, unwilling to submit to imperial rule from Jerusalem. Whatever the case, Rezin became an outlaw and formed and commanded an army of bandits who helped them seize Damascus and become the king of Aram. This became the rise of the Aramean kingdom, which by the end of the 9th century BC became the most powerful nation in the Levant. But it was the final adversary the Lord raised up against the son of David that was the greatest threat, because he was within Solomon's own ranks. A servant of the king, Jeroboam, son of Nebat, was a brave warrior who oversaw one of Solomon's forced labor units. But that all changed when a prophet of God named Ahijah told Jeroboam that the Lord was about to tear the kingdom away from Solomon, or more specifically Solomon's son, and make him the king over ten out of the twelve tribes of Israel. And in a scene very reminiscent of King Saul's undoing in 1 Samuel 15, Ahijah tore his garment into twelve pieces and gave ten of those pieces to Jeroboam, as a symbol that God was indeed going to tear the kingdom away from Solomon. Although Solomon tried to thwart the fulfillment of this prophecy by having Jeroboam killed, Jeroboam escaped to Egypt, where he stayed until Solomon died. Sadly, years earlier, Solomon had told King Hiram that he had peace on every side, but now, due to his ongoing disobedience, he found himself totally surrounded by these adversaries. King Rezin of Aram from above, and King Hadad of Edom, and his alliance with Egypt from below, and even Jeroboam, a future king of Israel from within. 
So God's response to Solomon's defiance is really interesting. He doesn't destroy him, but he does make his life very difficult by raising up powerful enemies against him. And I believe God was surrounding and pressing in on Solomon with the purpose of bringing him to repentance. And it's my own personal belief that it did eventually bring Solomon back to God. And I believe that that is expressed in Solomon's book of Ecclesiastes. In fact, he ends the book of Ecclesiastes after he talks about life without God. He talks about vanity, vanity, all is vanity. But he ends with this. He says, but the main thing is, this is what I found out. The main thing is you have to serve God in your lifetime mm -hmm. because nothing else works and nothing else matters. And he's absolutely correct. Yeah. What a fascinating, you know, he wrote Ecclesiastes and David wrote the book of Psalms. And so the hearts are very different, um, but it really is something to listen to the women that he had and uh, they just turned him against God and against his principles. Really mm, they something. did. All right, so we're going to learn now about jars. More jars, right. So on yesterday's program, we took a look at a recently published article about vanilla-infused wine from the time period just before the Babylonian destruction of Jerusalem in 586 BC. But there's actually a huge history of infusing or spicing or flavoring wine in the ancient Middle East. And one of the coolest finds, in my opinion, that I am aware of uh, is a massive, uh, massive wine storage system. So, so rooms uh, from the palace of Tel Cabri. Now, Tel Cabri is located in the Western Galilee region of Israel today, uh, but it dates to the Middle Bronze Age. So we're talking around 1700 BC. Uh, biblically speaking, that's the time of the patriarchs, the, the, the sons of Israel, sons of Jacob time frame-ish. So if you want to look at an, if you want to look at the right area on a biblical map or uh, online, it's in Western Galilee and it's close to uh, the Canaanite cities of Hatzor and Tyre. And it itself, Tel Cabri, was a Canaanite city. Okay, so Brandon, you can throw up, Brandon, you can throw up picture one because my information is coming from articles that are available on the websites Plus One and academia.edu, which are both open access websites for reading scholarly articles. So if you'd like to look them up for more details, that's where you could find them. Now, the field report was originally published in the American Journal of Archaeology, but you can also find that, I believe, on academia. Okay, so... Let's get on to the interesting bit, right? What was found? So Tel Cabri was a Canaanite uh, political center and it had a huge palace structure. Uh, when it was excavated, it was the largest ever excavated in Israel from that time period. And it may still be the largest, I'm not sure. I haven't heard if the record has been broken yet, but the palace seems to have been organized around the idea of hosting feasts and banquets for large groups of people. Brandon, go ahead and throw up picture number two. This is from the article. You can see uh, the, the people who are excavating it. They got their volunteers to, to spell out Cabri <laughs> with their bodies there on the end, but that's the palace. Um, so excavations revealed several banquet, ro banquet rooms and large courtyards that seem to have been arranged for feasting, for hosting which pairs really well with the other impressive find, an extremely large storage system for wine. We're talking this palace could hold an estimated 
4,000 plus liters of wine, which is several thousand modern bottles of wine. Uh, there were multiple rooms in the wine area connected by a hallway, and these rooms were filled with very large storage jars. Brandon, you can go ahead and pop up uh, the next picture when you have a second. Uh, but these storage jars, you can see them there in the picture. They're not the largest that are known to have existed, uh, but these this size seems to have been chosen so that they could still be moved when they were filled with wine. Though to be fair, it would have been really difficult to move them. It probably would have taken two men who, would, who probably would have lifted the jars suspended from a pole, probably secured to the pole with a net. The article mentions that um, images uh, from Egypt are known of, of servants moving wine jars this size like that. So the jars, get this, when they were full, they would have weighed about 265 pounds. So, That's a serious movement It's a big jar. It's a heavy jar. Heavy, heavy jar. Okay, so... <laughs> the wine rooms seem to have been arranged uh, to facilitate spicing or flavoring of the wine. So the process is believed to have started in the southern rooms and progressed accordingly north. So the first rooms would uh, stored unflavored wine and empty jars, and then there would be rooms in which resin was added. Now, resin helped um, preserve the wine. They needed it to last a long time. So the resin uh, was mixed in there to help preserve it and then it would move on to other rooms where herbs and spices were added to flavor the resin wine and then the next stop would have been uh, the banquet hall or courtyards after the wine had been decanted obviously into smaller vessels. Okay, so the wine was likely spiced to the taste of the ruler at the time. They, they, We know from other records from Mesopotamia that certain kings and certain rulers had certain tastes, so they would have kind of signature flavors. And these jars show that honey, cedar oil, cypress, juniper berries, and possibly even mint and myrtle were used here at this palace to flavor the wine. So you can see, you know, 1700 BC, there is a very long history of infusing wine with flavor in Israel. Wine was a major man-made product of this country. So it makes sense that it was prepared and preserved and flavored with great care. And wine is listed as one of the blessings of God recorded in Psalm 104, where it's listed alongside oil for your face and bread for your stomach. So wine was the major product or a major product in that time. Yeah. So when Jesus turned water into wine, that was a major thing in his time. It was a big deal. It was a big deal. And and of course, wine was for enjoyment uh, and and to, to be drunk with meal at meal time is at meal times. But what we don't often think about is that it was very critical for survival. Not only did it preserve the grape harvest, but it also increased the caloric value. It, it, it made it it has more of a caloric hit than say grape juice alone would have. And that's really important when you're trying to survive in the ancient world, when you don't have mass exports of food coming in from other countries. So it's important for us to understand the culture of this. Yeah. Uh, and, and that brings a new perspective too, because I know there's people who make all kinds of claims about Jesus, change it in the grape juice, not wine and all that. But right. wine is, is, was a, a major factor because it also was a way to keep 
poisoned clear from a lot of things. A, a lot of times drinking water when not palatable, they would lean on things, not just wine, but also what we would call beer. Yeah. The Bible calls strong drink often. And and those, those were even... Um, ordered in some of the uh, Levitical laws for offerings. It reads strong drink. You could easily, uh, the, all the cognizance uh, in other languages, we translate that beer. So mm. this, this fermentation of liquid, having some of that alcohol in there actually made it safer to drink sometimes than regular water that could be easily contaminated by bacteria. And so, in fact, uh, in that climate and everything water yeah. was so it's a very different way to understand things very good all right thank you excellent yes. tell us about the 16th if you're watching before 3 right. 30. if you are watching this when it comes out on friday june 16th and if you're watching this before 3 30 eastern time you still have time to join us live in the studio we're going live at 3 30 eastern time on my youtube channel which is Corey babechka but if you're watching afterwards you can watch the rerun you can. You can still watch so, the rerun. You, there you just can't go. chat with us live. <laughs> All, right, All right, the question. We have a question. Here it is. It's a finish, the verse. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers together the outcasts of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted. And does he set their paths straight? Does he raise up all who are bowed down? Or does he bind up their wounds? Does he set their paths straight? Does he raise up all who are bowed down? Or does he bind up their wounds? Yeah. How do you want to finish this verse? Yeah, I, I love this verse. Uh, it's it's not, I'm going with number three. Yeah, Binds definitely. up their wounds. Absolutely. I back that 100%. Mm -hmm. All right. <laughs> well, let's go right to the source. Psalm 147, verse three. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers together the outcasts of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. If you also agreed with Ryan and Corey, then you are absolutely right. Congratulations. And I want to say hello to Greg, who's watching on YouTube, and he always gets these, tries to get them all right. He does a great job from down in North Carolina. One of my favorite friends. Anyway, uh, so very good. Now let's remember that on the weekend, we study and we've got the weekend show coming up and all of that stuff. But Monday, we'll be back here talking about some more things related to Proverbs. BD Family and Friends, that's the name of the channel. Bible Discovery, Family and Friends, Discovering the Bible. All the programs we've done here in the last 30 years, we've put on that station, actually more than that. 
and uh, it's our channel to you. We have programs there that are video on demand as well, but it's our channel for you. And we want to encourage you to go to the website and you can check it out. BD Family and Friends, that's the station to watch. Very good. Okay, let's pray. Father, help us to become wise. Help us to read your word as you have told it to us. We need to hear you and not all of these other ideas coming in. So we focus our attention on you. In the name of Jesus Christ, and we said together, amen.